SaaS software, everybody is experimenting. Everybody is trying to find their fit with the customer. There's no right answer. There's no one size fits all. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Black Line Podcast. I am uh, hosting from a remote location, Mike, here uh, in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Um, and, and you might be wondering what, uh, what could possibly have me doing a podcast while I'm on, on Rehoboth Beach. And, and the answer is actually really simple. We've got a guest that, uh, that I've wanted to have on this show since we started. And, you know, I finally realized the key to getting him on the show was to ask. Uh, so with no further ado, Christopher O'Donnell, welcome to the Black Line Podcast. Hey, how are you, Doug? And, and Mike, great to be here. I've been looking forward to this. And, and, yeah, and awesome. Hey, thanks, for, uh, thanks for joining us, Chris. Before we get into it with all this crazy uh, social distancing, et cetera, I actually think this is the first time I've seen you since the announcement, um, which I realize is not new anymore, but congratulations, uh, Chief Product Officer at... Uh, oh, thank you. At, thank um, you. Yeah, I feel like I've seen you because we talk a lot, but right. uh, I, I, guess, I guess we haven't. Yeah, it's been too long, but thank you. That's very nice of you. Now, now you just need a three in there and you could be C3PO instead of just CPO. See, Mark, that's a Star Wars. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Star Wars thing. Wasn't a good so, one. So, uh, Christopher, let me ask you this question. Um, for those of you that oh, actually, why don't you introduce yourself just for anybody who may not know who you are? Why don't you uh, tell your story instead of me? Yeah, sure. So, my name is Christopher O'Donnell. I live in, uh, in the Boston area. I work at HubSpot, um, coming up on 10 years, um, if you include the time that I spent at a Series A funded startup that was acquired by HubSpot in 2011 called uh, Performable. And so over that decade, um, I've seen the company grow from you know 200 to 4,000 employees from something like 40 million in revenue to whatever we are you know, now, starting to look at the, the billion dollar mark. Um, and, uh, seen the company go public, seen, you know, my role change from being a frontline product manager, kind of rewriting software back in 2011 to, um, having the opportunity to, to take stewardship of the, you know, the product practice as a whole here, which has been, um, enormously fascinating. Uh, and, you know, so ev every year has been almost a completely different journey. Uh, and, and I'm very fortunate to have, you know, kind of hung on to the rocket ship and, and been able to learn from Brian and Darmesh and everybody, particularly on the team and, and customers. Uh, uh, high, high bar, highly opinionated uh, agency partners, solution partners, uh, like my good friend, Dr. Davidoff here. Um, and uh, those, those don't exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, in, in my private life, um, you know, I'm a dad, I got two kids. Um, I moved out to the, the suburbs last year and um, I have a five-year-old daughter, seven-year-old son. That's, you know, sort of the center of my life. Uh, I play a lot of music. I have a, a studio band called The Providers, which allows me to kind of continue working on the, the real nitty-gritty OCD creative process stuff that I really, you know, I, I don't get to do as much of these days. The, the team's pretty big at work. And so software wise, you know, it's much more of a kind of setting the vision and, and you know, kind of building the team um, more than it is kind of pushing pixels around. So 
so music is sort of my outlet for <laughs> for being an obsessive uh, knob twiddler. Um, and uh, yeah, that's me. So, I, I, as you were telling the story, I was I was thinking back. Um, I I must have met you like right after you joined HubSpot. It was a part. It was the very very first partner day, and um, the conversation about CRM because uh, it was signals and sidekicks was the thing, and you were running a little group conversation about that. And um, and yes, yeah, hard. You know, you were. And you were saying how you were in there, you guys were writing the code and, and, and you, so that, that whole like, that, that path from frontline person who had his hands in everything. And, you know, if you saw a problem, you were most likely the one to fix it to now. Um, I mean, A, kudos, because that's a journey that very few people successfully make, especially at the same company. Usually they have to change companies to, to get there. I, I think a lot of people listening would, would, would have this question, what, knowing what you know now, what would you, wh where did you misread things? What were some of the mistakes that you made for, you know, instead of giving the tr traditional, here's how I navigated that journey. What, what surprised you that, that you think would be insightful to those people that are, you know, currently, you know, wh whether they're, they're at a large company and they're looking to grow their career or they're at a relatively small company and they want to grow with that. But what are some of the things that, what are the lessons you've learned to help get from that hand in everything to now leading a, a you know, one of the hottest tech companies in the world? Well, there's stuff, it's a great question. I think there's stuff that would apply in a lot of circumstances. And then there's stuff that I've had to learn just about myself, you know, uh, in terms of trying to develop a leadership style and a practice of my role that gives the people around me what they wouldn't have if I weren't here, you know? And that's in many ways, the hardest part of this is just trying to figure out how does, how does one fit into the greater whole in the most productive way? Um, because we all have, you know, our, our strengths, our weaknesses, our strengths can be our weaknesses. That's, that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned is that uh, it's a very interesting balance sheet where the, the assets are the liabilities and so, you know, that, that leads to a pretty interesting uh, challenge. Um, and then, you know, I, I think in terms of the more universal stuff, it's really about, um, it's about team, it's about communication, recruiting. I mean, it's, the team is what makes everything. You know, the team is the customer experience, it's the user experience in the product, it's the, the quality level of the product, um, the, the depth of how well the product fits what people are looking for. All of that is coming from the creative people on the team who are doing the work. And so even if there are two of you, you know, understanding how to get that team aspect right is pretty critical, you know? And so the, I, I think I learned that you can't carry anything very far on your own back. You know, uh, the, on the sidekick days. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was kind of, and in the early HubSpot days, you know, the first version of contacts, I was the front end developer for that. And, uh, you know, and the designer, <laughs> as scary as that is, and the UX researcher and the analyst and all that kind of stuff. And today we really have roles that are more specialized around each of those functions. Um, and that's a really good thing. 
you know, that's a really good thing. I think trying to be the jack of all trades while in the earliest stages is um, uh, sometimes necessary. You know, the faster you can give away the parts of the, of the, whatever your job is that someone else can do better, you know, the better off you are. And including giving those things away to people who you don't manage, you know, and, and that was a huge part of it too, from that startup within a startup phase that you mentioned, Doug, I was the engineering manager, for example. Well, that, you know, that dog did not, as they say, hunt. Um, I'm not an engineering manager. Uh, and so that was, there was just too much of a learning curve. And so, you know, overall, I think that's the biggest thing is trying to, um, trying to focus your own learning curve where it really matters. And, you know, I have people in my life, I'm fortunate to have people who've done this kind of thing at a much bigger scale. And, uh, and that's kind of the advice they give me too, is, you know, figure out what, figure out what you're really here for and give away the rest. And I think that you can do that earlier than, you know, than one might think. And that points into, you know, always be recruiting and the power of, of recruiting and the power of having a high bar on the team um, and creating a psychologically safe culture and inclusive culture, uh, a, you know, something, an environment where people want to come in and do their best work. Um, that's, you know, that's really the ball game. And uh, all of the meaningful conversations kind of shoot off of that. All the keeping up with tech trends or, you know, fighting competitive battles against competing products and all the rest of that. We have stories, you know, we have our own stories of what we've learned there. And uh, they're, they're reasonably interesting, I suppose, over a beer or something, but they're not, they're, they're, there's not real gold in those. You know, the punchline there is nobody has it figured out. In, in SaaS software, everybody is experimenting. Everybody is trying to find their fit with the customer. There's no right answer. There's no one size fits all. You know, we've envied companies that are doing something only to later learn that they envied what we were doing. And we're sort of chasing the tails here. So that stuff, you know, there, there isn't actually a ton that's really interesting. The interesting stuff is all on the human side. So um, can we, I'd, I'd love to unpack that a little bit because obviously HubSpot has evolved quite significantly over the time. Probably the engineers that you were looking at, looking for very early on could potentially be very, very different than they are today. Sure. Um, just as, uh, again, so, I mean, can you, can you, uh, can you dive a little bit more into like how hiring recruiting practice have evolved um, over that time? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you learn. And, and I think it's very important to obsess over the candidate experience and treat it like a customer journey. You know, there, there is the whole marketing and sales journey for in a, a team member from awareness through interest, the dance of recruiting and sort of signing up and, and coming to a, a deal together, you know, deciding to go forward with that deal. Uh, you know, moving on from that deal in some circumstances, uh, you know, which is, which is, you know, can, can be tough on one side or, or the other or both. Um, and so taking the same kind of care in getting the quote unquote customer feedback along the way is, is really critical. And if you ask, we found that people will really kick your butt in, um, in a productive way around, you know, what, what was it like to be a candidate? What was it like to be um, a new team member? What's it like to be someone at this level, 
you know, looking to move to the next level, all of those things. And we kind of obsess over those. And, you know, the, the short answer to your question, Mike, is we've, we've become more disciplined. You know, we've become more disciplined and more thoughtful about where we, uh, where we find product managers, how we develop product managers internally, how we find product leaders externally. Um, we've, you know, gotten a lot more disciplined from uh, a, a diversity and inclusivity perspective and casting a really broad net, being patient and raising the bar, you know, really, really raising the bar and not hiring, uh, it, you know, we, as many companies do, we leaned very heavily early on, on referrals. And so you get kind of a friends of friends of friends of friends sort of spin cycle that um, you end up with a bunch of people who are kind of thinking the same thing. And that doesn't, it doesn't really get you where you want to go if you're trying to, you know, to make a dent in the universe. Um, so that's been, that's been really huge as well. I think engineering is the most mature. Uh, it's the, it's just the largest N it's the largest group, you know, that's six or 700 of the thousand or so people that are in our overall kind of R and D group. Um, and so they're the most mature in terms of co-op programs and on-campus presence and, you know, new hire recruiting and all that kind of stuff. They're, they're kind of the state of the art product management and UX have become, uh, you know, a lot more disciplined. Last year, we, we doubled PM and UX from 100 to 200. Wow. So we hired over 100 people in 2019. Um, and so there's a lot of discipline and uh, a lot of kind of redoing the entire candidate experience over and over and over. Um, the biggest thing I would say, though, is the biggest mistake I see, uh, or the biggest learning, is that recruiting is everybody's job on the team. You know, and if you're lucky enough to have a recruiter or an HR function that is there to help with that process, they are to be viewed as an incredible luxury and not a service that is going to deliver, you know, a, a product to you on a plate. Um, they are partners. They, they handle an extremely important set of responsibilities. And, you know, the, a great recruiter is your absolute killer weapon as a, as a team builder and a team leader, but you as a hiring manager, you are the one recruiting and hiring. Um, and, you know, falling into the trap of saying, I'm not getting the right candidates from recruiting or recruiting missed the headcount goal or whatever is just total death. That's just total death. You have to have ownership over it, just like you would have ownership over a product if you're a product manager. So, sounds well, like so the battle between uh, sales and marketing. Yeah. And well, that all exists. You know, it, it, it's so similar. You know, I, um, I have a friend that I made actually just on Twitter. <laughs> I've never actually met this fellow, but he's a recruiter at another company. And, uh, and I see him venting and, and he vents to me on Twitter DMs and stuff about, you know, hiring managers that, you know, just don't get this. Right. And don't get that this is a, this is a, a partnership um, and that you can't just expect a recruiter to source the perfect candidate and put them on a platter, that it is very iterative. Um, everybody needs to be involved in, in everything. The recruiters need to be there for the pre and the post. I mean, our, our PM and engineering recruiters are, know so much about our mission, and they know so much about the, the success of the candidates that they've brought in 
you know, so that when, when they speak to a candidate, it's very authentic and very deep. You know, you can ask them a lot of questions and they have friends on the team that they have brought in and seen them grow over years on the team. And so they have real answers about what it's like to work here. It's, you know, yeah, we're the number one place to work in America and that's great. It's not a perfect place and it's not for everybody. And, you know, being able to find in the conversation, like I'm always looking in, with a candidate, I want to know what they're going to, you know, when they're cooking dinner with their spouse, let's say, uh, at night and they say, you know, I'm really interested in HubSpot. The thing I'm concerned about is X. Like, I want to know what X is and I want them to have the honest answer, you know? And when you do that, people come in and they go, wow, okay, this is, this is as advertised, you know, good, bad, that's, that, that's key. Hey, I, I want to circle to something you said earlier, because I think it's a challenge both from, uh, you know, n navigating the progression of the career, but, but also it, it, it's a challenge. And I think HubSpot, I'm curious how you guys are, are managing it. The, the, the paradox is, as you said earlier, you know, you can only get so far with everything on your back. But at the same time, when you were the manager and the engineer and you built out contacts and this, you, you also got a very wide exposure to, to what, you know, you know, HubSpot is a great example because I don't know of anybody that, that, that it's gone as broad and deep as HubSpot has with, with what's going on. And, and when you're, when you're seeing that, 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 that full focus, you understand that this piece, you know, may not be directly connected to something over here, but to the user, they're the same thing. And, and so you see that more holistically, I, I can certainly see where challenges have emerged. And how do you maintain that viewpoint where, um, as, as a friend of mine likes to say, you know, how do you prevent it from, you know, six blind people trying to describe an elephant, which I think is a lot of times how this whole product feature specialization is, is negatively impacting the SaaS and tech world. Oh, what a great question, man. What a great question. I mean, the, the the part of our culture that would i hope be relatively obvious to for instance you doug is that the product managers who are now much more specialized than i was back in the day um they know more about that area of the product than anybody on the planet you know and they're paired up with a, a support expert who is you know, a product expert on that area of the product. A lot of those folks end up coming into the product management practice over time. And so you know, I get a question on a part of the product. I can go to the associate product manager for that part of the product. They're going to know 1,000 times more about that part of the product than I ever will. And that's why we give them the, the real power to make decisions, you know, because they really know they know all everything that's going on out there. Now, here's that's the, what I would argue is the more obvious part. The less obvious part is that we also, in addition to all of those kind of, of more tactical customer conversations and voice of the customer, we have a lot of shared conversations. Um, and that's a huge part of our culture is to be talking to customers with a lot of people in the room. Even if you know 38 out of 40 of those people are just listening, we're all discussing it behind the scenes and those voices carry on, you know, over and over and over. And so, and I happened to be on the call here with somebody who's very involved in the product process, but we will say, we will introduce Doug into the conversation. Literally. Everyone goes, oh, 
No, 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 we will. And, but here's the thing. So many people have talked to you and also we have come together around artifacts that you have given us and discussed your perspective together. And that I think is the piece that would be easy to miss mm -hmm. is, you know, to, you can have five product managers talk to Doug Davidoff, but you know, are we all looking at the, the, you know, annual Google doc that we get, get from Doug where he says, Hey, you know, this is what I think you're getting right. And this is where I think you, you know, you got to have a conversation. Um, and we're all in there debating it. That's yeah. the key is the shared view of specific people, like specific names and faces and phone numbers and families and, you know, incomes and livelihoods and everything. And being able to hold those conversations together in memory, that's how you end up describing the actual, you know, the, the actual thing you're trying to do and not just describing pieces of it. Yeah, I, I think the toughest thing to learn, I, I see it in business all the time. And, and I imagine that it's, it's true. I think it's true when it, when it comes to building out tech is that, you know, optimizing your feature or, or your product, your part of the product is not necessarily optimizing the entire product that, that, and, and, and understanding where, where does that place where maybe, yeah, this isn't that, you know, I didn't max this, but um, actually the toughest lesson I learned when I was learning about writing and I see it all the time and I know how hard you've worked as a presenter. So you've probably seen this too, that, that very often the key from an okay presentation or an okay work to something great is when you actually edit out your sacred cow, you edit out your favorite part, your go-to line, the thing that, that you started off with, like that's why you were doing the presentation to begin with was because you wanted to deliver this line. And then when it's all done, it's actually taking that out that, that, that oftentimes actually, you know, turns everything on fire. I think that that's a hard lesson for, for everyone to learn. So that it's a very interesting way for, um, you know, for, for, for how you guys approach that. I'll tell you, you know, I, so to bring music into this a little bit, uh, the pandemic has been, um, interesting in that basically all of these legendary performing musicians are stuck at home now and without an income because they can't tour, which is really how they make their money. And so everybody's teaching. So I'm telling you, if you're a guitar player, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity because for, you know, relatively small amount of money, you can take a guitar lesson from basically anybody right now. And so I've been doing that and I've been doing a lesson or two with some of, of my heroes of the instrument and then, you know, recording them and taking notes and sort of looking at it. And one common theme, it's interesting to see, you know, cause you, you take a lesson with, with uh, Josh Smith and he says, yeah, I never practice with the metronome. There's no point. And then you take a lesson with Ariel Posen and he says, Oh, absolutely. hundred percent of the time practicing with the metronome. So there's some stuff where people do things differently, but the theme a hundred percent in playing and in composition and melody is it's all about editing out. It's all about, it's exactly what you just said, Doug. It's don't play something because it's the thing you've been practicing. You know, don't do that. Say, say what you mean, you know, say what you're feeling at the time. And they have this huge emphasis on authenticity. All of them, everybody I've taken a lesson from. Um, and that's completely changed my view of the instrument because it's not about playing fast or, or getting enough diminished scales in there or doing something that people are gonna sort of raise their eyebrows at. 
it's none of that. The stuff that, that really speaks to people is, is, the, is the authentic piece. And so on, in the product culture, it's about simplifying and taking all of these different teams and having them rally principally around fewer themes. And, and so because you're, we have that problem. Exactly what you said, Doug, is you have the local optimization problem where if, and we used to have this problem, we'd say, look, product managers, you can kind of do whatever you want, but every once a month, you got to get up at our product demo, which we call science fair, and you have to show what you've done and make a heck of a case about it. And over time, the expectation was to be very thoughtful about data, voice of the customer, names, faces, life stories, you know, uh, co-signing of that feature or improvement from customers. And we had to switch that to really be much more collaborative. Uh, so actually after this, I, I get to hop off and we have a reporting science fair, which is gonna be you know, enormously uh, exciting to see, but every team is part of this reporting science fair. So there's a reporting products team, but everybody has had six months to make sure that they can't have an opportunity to get up on stage and show something amazing around reporting, no matter what team they're on. I'm sorry, I'm, I missed the login. I didn't seem to get the login <laughs> information for that. Cause. I, I, well, I'd stay tuned, man, because uh, we, uh, we, we, we may be able to take those science fairs and, and make them a little bit more accessible, but I yeah, I, you know, more than that. No, so Christopher, I, 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 if you, you want to come, Doug, if you want to come at the top of the hour, you're welcome to, I'll show you the zoom. I, I, I mean, if, if, if it's cool, yeah. I mean, I, we're, oh, we're totally. deep. You're in, man. You're in. This, this You're is not NDA, podcast, right? but we're, yeah. we're like deep, deep, deep. You know, you know what we're doing. We're deep, deep, deep in reporting. That'd be, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Sorry, Mike, so, go on. Uh, so I, I do want to come back to some of the, like, product manager decisions, things like that. But I'd love, and this is a little bit self-serving, I'd love to get your take on something. Um, so one of the things and, and, and that, that I've noticed HubSpot do and some of the more advanced SaaS companies that have, have, have grown, especially on this side of engineering recruiting, is that the backend tech stacks that they choose mm -hmm. are a little bit, as, as far as the recruiting process, help with a little bit of self-selection. So whether that be, hey, HubSpot at an early stage chose to use Kafka. Um, or you chose to use Kubernetes or Scala or something along those lines. And there's only so many engineers in the world that have expertise around those technologies. So it becomes a little bit of a self-selection process in that recruiting um, component. I'd, I'd love to get your take. I, I, Doug, why are you laughing? Because you're trying to get like your mom to like your mom's going to stop watching and listening to the podcast. I don't know. I know but, <laughs> you but, have but, taken hey, this down to an audience. <laughs> no, go on. That's a great question. I'm sorry. It's just a great question. It's a, I'll try to. I'll try to. I'll try to. Uh, I'll try to hit that back to you in a in a more general way. Uh, the same thing can happen in sales and marketing. Where no, no, I, I know. Say, I know. Hey, I know. I no, want. I want to hire a salesperson, and I'm in the data storage industry, so I want somebody that has. I no. You're right. You're. I, it's a good yeah. question. I just. It was just funny. It just struck me as funny. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and we, there's this hilarious thing happening that's becoming a meme, which is like, you know, we're looking for somebody with 12 years of Kubernetes experience. And it's like six years, right? Yeah, it's only been around for six years. Um, so what can I say about this? We, um, first and foremost, we have a massively outsized investment in developer productivity. And that is a decision that I would say is applicable across the board to any business leader, CEO of any company, any department leader, whatever. Um, 
because we want to put our money where our mouth is. And we believe that when we attract the right people, the truly great creatives and engineers, the best way we can keep them is to keep them around high quality peers and with incredible opportunity to create impact. And so we Chris, have- repeat what, Chris, repeat what you said. We have an outside investment in, I just- Our, our developer infrastructure. Okay, so that, we get, that, that's so going to apply to a hundred other things. Pick, pick it up. I, that that's awesome. That like yeah, I, just I mean, got my money's worth. You know, you need to go. I mean, we're, we're whatever we are, ten billion dollar market cap public company. I mean, we're a small cap company. We we right. view ourselves as very early in this whole yeah. thing, but you would need to go to Google. You know, or or maybe Uber, to have the the level of developer tooling. And so what that means is you get, when you get your laptop on your first day as an engineer, it's like getting the keys to a Ferrari. And from a selfish perspective, you can drive the thing a lot faster and you're not going to want to go back to another company where you're going to have to drive a Civic around all day, you know, and you go to production your first day. We go to production over a thousand times a day. Um, and it's just a killer stack. You know, we actually had an engineer come from Google recently <laughs> and a fellow got a few months in and said, I thought there were going to be a lot more hairy problems around infrastructure to deal with. Like it, it may not be interesting enough for that person to work here because a lot of those problems that you would assume we hadn't solved um, are solved. Now, as part of that, so that's sort of a cultural thing. If you want your people to have autonomy and you want them to have power and you want them to go to production a thousand times a day, you and leadership need to take your budget and your time and your energy and, you know, and get the feedback to get the tooling to where it needs to be so that that's actually possible. And people want to open up their laptops when they're inspired. You know, maybe it's on the weekend, maybe they're going skiing, maybe they want to, you know, they want to dive in and do something. You need to make work fun. Um, and you have to invest to do that. You don't just get that for free. Now, in terms of languages and expertise and so forth, yes, there is some self-selection. Some of it is on, you know, just sort of level of software engineering. So if you're a, you know, PHP WordPress developer, you're probably not going to want to come in and do, you know, Java backend service for a public company, commercial software shop type of stuff. That's, there's just a gap, a skill gap yep. there. Um, but we do have people who come in all the time and say, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to work with an interpreted language. I'd love to be writing in Python or Ruby and be able to move really quickly. And we say, well, we're a Java shop. You know, we're a monolingual shop. We made that decision early on. We stuck to it. There are always debates about it. We tried having, uh, you know, a Python infrastructure and a Java infrastructure. And we, we learned very quickly. Um, it was massively slowing us down and affecting quality. So it's a Java 8 shop, period. And we often get in the interview question, uh, interview process questions around, oh, well, can we bring, you know, Scala or can we do something that's in the JVM? And we say, we get that question all the time. And we have literally never had anybody once they onboarded, ask that question again. So, you know, again, that's, that's, that's leadership putting the work in to make in it a, a scalable enterprise software development environment feel like you can move as quickly as you could with Ruby on Rails with a couple of friends in a coffee shop. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a heck of a rig. 
So, yeah, no, super interesting perspective. And we've obviously been involved and talked to a lot of your product managers and engineering teams and, you know, understand the, the complexity of the infrastructure, which is why we believe in that as well. But also, you know, tell me a little bit about why we're in that. Like, do you guys open source much as a, um, I know there's some stuff that HubSpot open sources, but that also can be a kind of like a recruiting mechanism. Um, and the same thing goes true for, for marketing. Like we, we open source content all the time, right. but on the engineering side, open sourcing code can also be a, a lever for, uh, for recruiting as well. Yeah, we, we had one phase in particular as we were really starting to scale up our recruiting efforts where we put a couple of engineers full time on that. Hmm. Um, on, you know, basically, hey, look, uh, success for your two-person team is how many stars we get on open source GitHub repos. And we did a bunch of stuff that's up there, a lot of JavaScript, you know, utilities and, and cool, just fun, frankly, just fun shit. Um, and so we had that whole kind of chapter. We're doing less of that these days. Um, and then we did a, a, a big investment in a, a, a platform as a service layer called Singularity, um, which was used at, at some very large enterprises and was a pretty big investment for us. Um, so yeah, we have, we, we've been involved in open source. Um, we're, I would say less indexed on it today. Um, but it'll be interesting to see as we scale. We haven't had to, to my knowledge, we haven't had to do what's common for a Facebook type uh, shop um, and branch and maintain or take over a major uh, open source library. We haven't, we haven't found ourselves in that position yet, but I could see at two or three times our size, you know, potentially getting into that. But it's, it's great for recruiting. It's, it really yeah. put us on the map. Investing there really put us on the map. And we started, uh, we started getting our calls returned a lot more. Alrighty, I'm going to take a left turn. I'm going to I'm going to ramp up a little bit. We're going to bring in a take, maybe add some controversy to the uh, to the conversation. Um, really get some get some perspective here. So, um, I guess I want to say first off, like, and you don't even have to answer this. Can you did did you think the day that HubSpot went public that by this time you'd be talking about HubSpot as a ten billion dollar company? I mean, holy cow! You, I, I I saw that. I, it's no, um, like just that. So so you know, uh, uh, amazing. And I think that that's a sign of just the MarTech landscape in general. Um, if you go back to 2011, I don't even think that you could have, in, like, you couldn't have even imagined that you would be able, that, that the capabilities would exist that exist today as easily, as openly, and as inexpensively, even though all one has to do is look at my monthly um, technology bill, and I am not a $10 billion valuation company and, um, and sometimes shocked by it. So, on one hand, I'm, it, it's awe-inspiring. On the other hand, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, um, I don't agree with the statement 100%, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to, but I agree with it enough. I don't think it's working. Um, I think there's all kinds of capability. I think that um, if you look at satisfaction and PS scores for most technology, they're relatively low. Um, if you look at every promise that technology is supposed to solve, it's supposed to increase productivity. Yet by just about every account, marketers are spending less time marketing. Salespeople are spending less time selling. Um, data, we can measure everything. That's supposed to make things more predictable. I think that, and there are obviously exceptions, but, but by and large, um, I see the things that people are doing are, are probably blinder th than they were. So, so all of these things are going on. All the capabilities are there. Everything's like, why has this, 
why hasn't it, it, it triggered? Why isn't it fulfilling the promise that it was set out to fulfill, even though it's beyond anyone's imagination when the promise was made? Yeah, I, I think there are a few, few parts to it. One, I, I will say, you know, there's sort of the, uh, like the, the old thing that people spend the same amount of time washing clothes as they did 100 years ago. You know, and, and I don't really know how to take that quote unquote fact. <laughs> um, because it sure seems like having a washer and a dryer are a big help and I wouldn't want to go back in time. And I think that there's kind of a, a parallel here. There are a lot of things that, you know, CRM systems introduce more work for the rep and so forth and so on. And it's hard to match that up against, uh, you know, the, the time savings there. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, if you ask a barber for a haircut, if you need a haircut, the answer is always yes. You know, so I think different research coming from different corners is going to sort of confirm various different biases. Um, that being said, I do think that overall, this CRM front office technology landscape is in a very experimental phase right now. And things are changing very quickly as well. Social media in particular, uh, paid advertising, uh, and so forth. You know, th there are channels that are becoming the new norm um, that are changing rapidly. And, you know, how you engage with those and how you sort of develop a, a, a sales and marketing pipeline around these things is um, it's almost quicksand-like because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't stay the same long enough. Um, inbound marketing still works, but it's not the panacea it was maybe eight years ago. So the landscape's changing really quickly. I think there are a million vendors out there that are all experimenting and you see a lot of stuff that just doesn't really matter. You see a lot of individual tools and categories where the promise of all of this ROI doesn't really ever materialize. Um, you know, there are amazing features that you can come up with and build and design and they feel very, you know, sexy and very, uh, you know, holding a huge promise and they don't really deliver. And there are some things that, that deliver, but you kind of wonder what's going to happen in the next five years, like email for sales. Like, I have really no idea whether the, the whole cold email thing is going to continue to work indefinitely. I think it, you know, that's an interesting conversation. Um, so I think it'll coalesce. I mean, and that's largely our strategy. I mean, part of my answer is self-serving in the sense that <clears throat> we don't try to be, um, you know, we try to innovate by integrating and doing things in a more approachable, more powerful, more natively integrated kind of approach. Um, but we want to do the things that we know work. It's really, you know, steak over sizzle, more steak, less sizzle. Um, so, and I think a lot of sizzle out there and a lot of really interesting startups doing promising things. And I know with interest, a lot of them go away. So I'll draw an analogy that, that the conversation today has, has made me think of in, um, in athletics, when um, discipline weight training got introduced, um, <clears throat> it got adopted very, very quickly. Uh, you know, for, for obvious reasons. And, and one of the things that happened was as players worked out, the injury rates, they, they got in better shape. Hmm. All you have to do is take a look at the, you know, Babe Ruth versus, um, well, someone might say David Wells. You know, Christopher, I am a baseball guy. We got to move the line. Um, but <laughs> the, the I injuries actually increased and, and, it, it led to the mythology of the muscle-bound athlete. Um, what they actually found was that 
when you started to weight train, there was an over focus on building big muscles um, and an under focus on building small, on strengthening small muscles. And, and, you know, for example, you know, baseball players, cause I saw this firsthand when I, when I was coaching in college, you know, they, they worked out because they wanted to play ball and impress the girls when they were walking to class. And so of course they focused on, you know, the front muscles um, and they didn't build the small muscles in the back that would actually, that, that actually were responsible for strength. And so what you had was because your big muscles got so much bigger, you actually increase the weakness of the small muscles and that's where injuries occurred. You now see people ma managing that balance, right? So I think that part of the problem is, I'm curious what you had to say, that there's been this focus on technology and, and very much on the, of the focus of technology and doing more, more features, more things, more capabilities. But I think what has happened is, um, the mistaken belief because of marketing of technology as a solution. Right. So technology is, has become the tail that wags the dog instead of looking at technology as the accelerator or as the capability balanced by strong business process in a dynamic environment that requires ongoing adjustment, right there. It, it's, it's never said it would be like, Hey, okay, I'm done working out. I, I did my last workout. I'm in good shape. For the rest of my life, right? There's always, you know, you're always balancing and, and counteracting and cross training, etc. I think in a lot, I think the underlying component, because you are correct, I would not want to go back to where we were 10 years ago, I could not do what I do today, 10 years ago. Yet at the same time, what I also said was true that, that for the most part, I still think it's not working. And I think what's happened is, is that technology has has overbalanced. And we now you know, in some ways, because technology has become so easy, it is so easy to put technology in yes. and go, okay, and skip the really hard part of, I mean, think about it. Every great piece of technology, at least in my opinion, was created because someone had figured out how to do something manually and just couldn't do it quickly yep. enough, but they figured out how to do it and then they automated it. And now we're skipping that step. I, I couldn't agree more, you know, and there we, we just had our executive team offsite four days of kind of uh, the more, you know, more future facing controversial pie in the sky type of stuff where we talk about lots of stuff we won't end up doing. It's the, the one time of the year where we focus a lot of that conversation and that kicks off our planning process, um, which, you know, ultimately is a reasonably practical one year planning yeah. process uh, with seeds and bets for for the for the longer term. And I, I kept coming back to in those conversations, as much as I love to think about the pie in the sky stuff, and I'd love to, you know, have, you know, laser powered satellites, you know, and, and doing all sorts of, you know, build weather balloons and self-driving cars like we're, we're CRM company. Um, the thing I kept coming back to is we're debate, why are we debating making a technology investment when we haven't even done it manually first? or we don't even know how our customers do this manually first. We don't know why this is a pain in the butt. Um, and, and that's in, in our product development process, that's what, that's what we do. I'm working with one of our directors of product now and a brilliant fellow and he has this beautiful deck and this vision for doing this thing and all this kind of stuff. And I said, for Matt, I'm, I'm not gonna be impressed by this until you can get you know, a customer on the phone 
And just by asking them questions about this set of tasks, you can get them swearing. You know, I want to know what is BS about this. I want to know what is unfairly uh, hard and clunky and kind of dumb about this, this stuff. And the two by two matrices and the, the whole business school perspective on this thing is going to impress a lot of people, but it's not going to impress, you know, it's not going to impress the customer um, enough to pay some money unless it's really actually making their life better. So some of that is, is important. I think with it, with the music thing too, I mean, that's another thing that all these, you know, guitar players I talk to, they all say this, like, just because you can play something doesn't mean you should play it. And so if you buy, you know, the whole HubSpot enterprise thing, or if you have a fancy, you know, enterprise rig from another vendor or something like that, you should, you should not be going through the product marketing releases that they're doing or we're doing or whoever and saying, okay, what's our plan to use this? What's our plan to use this? And I see that all the time, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, go back to first principles. What is the strategy? You know, work with, work with somebody who thinks about sales process and the discipline here and, and the storytelling. What is the story that's working? What is the best way to tell that story? And if, you know, if there's a fancy new shining out, you know, don't go do a TikTok campaign if that's not going to, you know, to get you the results or do, do do a Snapchat campaign if, if you have something to say on, on that platform. So, you know, getting just when, back to that authenticity piece. When, when does behavioral science get a seat at the table with product managers? Hmm. Um, well, I think, I mean, I think part of the, I mean, part of the issue is that we, we live in a, we live in a world today of immediate gratification and so many people are just lo really looking for shortcuts. What's the silver bullet and marketing of whether it's SaaS companies or anybody out there, you know, Pro making promises that, hey, you're going to have to put very little work into this and you're going to get all these, you know, all these gains. Right. Yeah. I, I, I met with a company the other day and they were asking me about, you know, how do they, they, they wanted to hire somebody to really focus on HubSpot on their team. And so we were talking about that and what they wanted to do. And it all made a ton of sense. And then the founder said, you know, and then marketing strategy, you know, it, do we need somebody to really do marketing strategy? I don't know anything about marketing strategy. And I tried to gently point out to him that he knew absolutely everything that he needed to know about marketing strategy because he knew exactly who his customer was. And he had, and you could just look at his site and look at the content that they had, say you have the, the taste and the quality bar and the message and the story of what you're trying to do and you have lived it yourself. You do not need somebody to come in and you know, give you some you know, story to tell, like the story is yours. So, so I started to ask a question on when I said, you know, behavioral science, when do they get a seat, yeah. a seat at the table with product managers? And, and I had a chance to think about the question. Um, you know, it, I, I think, I think a lot, I mean, certainly part of the problem is, is on the part of the user, you've got to do the hard work to be able to, to take advantage of. But I also think that, um, what started off as a good thing has become, I think, a very dangerous thing. The whole idea of product-led growth um, has become um, a, a shortcut way for technology companies to, um, to, to get big valuations faster. Um, and and, and what, what I mean by this is that, you know, the product-led growth has become increasingly a Trojan horse strategy. And, and for the record, Trojan horses have never worked for the person receiving the Trojan horse. Um, 
so so the, the the point of this is that behavioral science has impact has gotten a seat at the table with technology for the standpoint of how do we make technology addictive how do we how do we um how do we make it appeal to the reptilian brain that you know that jumps on it and 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 brings it in because we know once we're in then you know you know et cetera et cetera but but what i'm not seeing you know when 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 technology, I'm old enough to remember as technology began to grow, and I remember when John Nesbitt in Megatrends coined the term high tech, high touch. Um, and, he, and he talked about, he said, the more high tech we get, the more high touch we need to be to balance that out. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm seeing technology, I, I'm, I, I refer to it, we're auto-tuning our businesses. We're auto-tuning our sales Ooh, I like that. Um, and, and what we're not doing is, is saying, okay, where's what's the role of the technology provider to understand the business ecosystem that they're operating in? And what, what I mean by that is the business process ecosystem, um, how people work. And, and every, we started off um, today with every strength is a seat of weakness, right? This, this awesome thing that technology does is great until the point where it, it becomes a weakness and, and, with with a lot of flowery language, a lot of flowery language, and and I'm not naming any names. I'm not. In, I'm just talking about in generally, um, you know, to make the world a better place. Where there, there's there's this, you know, a lot of it's just buyer beware, right? I mean, in, in in many ways, the the language has gotten very evolved, and if you take out away the fluffery more and more of that, of how technology I think is being developed, and being sold. Um, is has gone back to, to very much of a carpe diem. Um, a, how does that how does that take that subversive take as I listen to it strike you? Uh, and B, what do we do about it? Because it so is a good. Thing. Let me make sure I understand the problem statement. Um, the good. idea that product led growth, uh, an indictment of it, might very reasonably be well, this is just bait and switch where you know you have a it's like have you seen the south park episode on freemium yeah where the the minister of of uh canadian games says freemium comes from the latin free which means free and meum which means not really right <laughs> exactly. Exactly. uh yeah no i think a lot of people i think a lot of folks misunderstand the kind of the point and the behavioral science aspect of it i mean i, I think we're definitely moving in that direction you know we have ux research is now like the hot commodity on my team is user research. And it's this very unbiased, um, you know, human behavioral kind of process of understanding why people are doing what they're doing, what their expectations are, what their context is. And the PMs and the engineers and designers just absolutely love it. So in signing up for our free CRM, which is a, a, about as good an example of case law here as, as one could find for this conversation, um, because it is both. It is both a free CRM with lots of things inside it you can pay money for. Uh, the purpose of the free product is largely twofold. One is, and this is the most obvious thing is, one is it's a product that is on some level free forever that people can reasonably see some value and use indefinitely without paying. You know, um, Slack has a product like that. Like for my band, we have a Slack group with a, a handful of us in there to think about, you know, our, our photo shoots and releases and getting stuff mastered and, and all that kind of stuff. And we're never going to have to pay for Slack. 
You know, it's, it's free because it needs to be a fact of life for people so that when they show up at work, they assume that they would be able to bring this. This is sort of the Dropbox approach. Like we use Dropbox and Box at work. We use Box because, you know, finance bought it because they have a great product and a great sales process. Um, And then we use Dropbox because even though we have Box, everybody still uses Dropbox, you know, alongside it. Um, And so both of those approaches are, are very reasonable. The, the, and, and the key there is if your sales team doesn't think that it's kind of BS, that you have so much stuff in the free product, you probably don't have enough stuff in the free product. That's a good point. That's a great point. You know, and our starter products right now, I mean, you know, the starter products are extremely high value, <laughs> you know, for what they are. Um, and so there is internal conflict around that. And you want to see that. And Brian said that. He said, you know, I, I want to hear, I want to get emails from sales leaders complaining about these products, Christopher. Um, and, and we got him those emails for better or worse. He got those emails. The other reason though, is to give people a really clear picture of what they're getting. So, you know, there, there is on a behavioral science level, you know, look, it, it is not the kind of product people are coming in and saying, I'm just going to use this myself and eventually add one more person. And then, you know, sort of, more of a Dropboxy, you know, approach. It's not that. Half the time, it's somebody who's, let's say, an ops person, or a, you know, a utility infielder at a twenty-person company, let's say, and they come in and they're just trying to wrap their head around it and decide whether they want to bet their next chapter in their career on bringing this technology into the company. And it's it's budget, but it's actually more than that. It could even be the free product they need to evaluate before they spend their own polit- their own right. capital and their time and their energy. That's more valuable than you know a few hundred dollars a month or a few, you know, a handful of thousand dollars a year or something. And so the evaluation mode of this is extremely important too. And so we use that lens as well, where hey, even if something is gonna be paid, how do you what's the purpose of it being in the free product? And can we let them test the quality? Can we let them see the features and poke around? Um, And that's, I think, a a really good thing about product-led growth, which is, hey, look, you may even be involved in a high-touch sales process alongside having access to the product, but isn't it great that that salesperson has the extra credibility of, you know, at the end of the call saying, I know you're going to go and look, you know, I know you're going to go check out what's in the product and, and, and keep me honest. I wish we had more time. Um, yes. You're, you're right on. I, that, that's how PLG should be done. I think too often that's not how it's done. Sure. Um, and, 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 and kudos because you guys do a great job at it. Um, I know you got to go, man. I got like a hundred other things. I do want to tell you that, that your comment about the stack, that's changed how you're going to see some positioning that, that, that we're going to adjust. Because I'm going to say it's the same thing to the sales team, right? If you're not over investing in, in the tools, like if you want to play on the professional golf tour, would, would, would you go, I mean, the clubs might not be the difference, but you're probably not going to go cheap on the clubs. I'd rather make the mistake of like, and you know, too many people are trying to say, you know, sales or marketing is super important. I thought that was an awesome answer. Christopher, thanks so much. I know you've got to run. Uh, Mike, you want to say anything parting real fast? You got like uh, Christopher, seconds. no, greatly, greatly uh, appreciate you making some time. I've, I've literally came with like 50 other questions. So uh, maybe we'll maybe we can have you on as a uh, let's do part two sometime. It'd be fun. Love to. Sounds good, man. All right, I'll talk to you guys soon. All Thanks. right, thanks so much, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.